I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm Elon Jacobson, and uh, I have a very interesting guest with me, uh, Jay Rosenthal. Jay has a 20-year career intersecting really media, business, politics, policy, and I guess most recently, co-founder, managing director of the business of cannabis, which is North America's authoritative source for news and analysis of the cannabis industry. I'm sure we will dive into the cannabis industry at some point, Jay, but Jay has a story background working for... Senator Barbara Boxer, working for the mayor of San Jose, which is the 10th largest city in the U.S. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to learning about uh, Jay and his story. So Jay, thank you so much for joining me. I'll try to live up to the intro. <laughs> uh, look, if we're going to be talking about uh, things like cannabis and politics and media, I mean, it, it, it'll be exciting, I'm sure. I'll see what I can do. Jay, to, to get us started, you know, I, I always ask the guests, you know, how did you land up here? So take me back. Uh, I know a lot of your kind of previous uh, work was in the U.S. I would imagine that's where you kind of got your start. But 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 you know, I'd love to hear the uh, the origination story. Sure, sure, sure. So I'm. Uh, thank you for having me. First of all, so I am American by birth, Canadian by choice. I like. We, to we say. won't hold it against you. I know that's what I, that's why I, that's why I like being ensconced here in Toronto. So I'm from Boston originally, grew up outside of Boston, went to school in Atlanta at Emory, and then right out of school uh, landed in DC and working on Capitol Hill, which uh, I was actually speaking with someone this week, and it's it's uh, it shouldn't be surprising, but the, the level of how smart people are in DC right out of university and how driven was shocking to me because I was neither driven nor particularly smart, I don't think. Uh, but I did land there and that was really good experience. And then from there, I went to work in Senator Boxer's office on Capitol Hill, but then went to work in her California office. I'd actually never been to California when I went to start working for her out in San Francisco. And that was like an eye-opening experience. As you can imagine, it was 99 and there was a tech boom happening. I knew probably 10 15 people who are working for companies that they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they didn't know what the cut, like the, the most famous, like it's in stealth mode. I was like, stealth mode. Okay, cool. I was like, do you know what they're doing? And most of them are like, no, we don't. But I was working in politics, uh, which was not the sort of popular profession out there. And I went to work uh, for a big city mayor in San Jose and then left the mayor's office uh, to work for a small firm that uh, was just getting started, which is really where I think maybe the entrepreneurial bug sort of started ticking, which was, oh, you could just start your own thing. That's cool. And people might actually pay you for it if you're good enough at it. And the thing that I was doing was really political consulting, right? So public affairs, uh, a little bit of lobbying, but a lot of running little campaigns. And and then I started my own firm where I was doing work for really regulated industries. I was working for PG&E, which is a big electric and natural gas utility in California serving 15 million uh, customers. Uh, I worked for charter schools, also heavily regulated, also big in California, and, and Kaiser Permanente, which was a big healthcare uh, sort of HMO. And, and really, it was the intersection, as you said at the beginning, policy, politics, and regulated businesses. And that was sort of where I spent a good chunk of my sort of adult professional life. And it's interesting. I, I look back on that experience and there was one client. It was a garbage company that was trying to protect, I think it was a $700 million contract. And one of the things I was doing for them was monitoring local 
uh, newspapers, of which there was probably like 20 of them in this geography that, that comprised the contract. And they said, we need you to monitor these, these uh, newspapers every day and websites. I said, okay. And so I was doing that and sending them a report. I said, if I'm going to be doing this for a client, I should aggregate it and put it on, on a website so other people who are in policy and politics will also be able to sort of reap the benefits. And I was like, but I'm going to throw a little bit of snark in there. And it became like a news aggregation blog for a very specific subset of people in Silicon Valley and San Mateo and Santa Clara County. And I only say that because as I fast forward almost 15 years, it comes back, that sort of experience comes back around. And uh, in 99, 2000, my wife, who's from Toronto, moved to the Bay Area and we started a family. Well, we got married, we started a family. And we, and by we, I mean I wanted to raise the kid or soon to be kids in Toronto. I'd been here with her uh, a number of times. My folks live in Boston. We were spending all of our time traveling back and forth from San Francisco to Toronto, San Francisco to Boston. And it was just too much. And I thought, I believe that Toronto and larger Canada is the ideal place to live. And so we moved in uh, 2012. And so uh, that was sort of my professional background, working with heavily regulated industries at the intersection of politics and policy. Yeah, so, so I, I need to understand, you know, besides what, like enjoying smashing your head against the wall, dealing with regulators and, yeah. and, and policymakers, how did you land up there? Like, talk to me about what your parents were like, like what's oh, okay, the DNA sure. that... That, sure. uh, that, uh, that led you to enjoying that kind of work because yeah, that, sounds I, like, like, that sounds like a version of hell to me. <laughs> it, 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 what I was doing won't seem hellish compared to what my parents, I don't think they liked to do it, but they were very involved. So in Massachusetts, where I'm from, they, uh, they don't have like in town, so the difference between towns and cities. In Massachusetts, towns don't have mayors and city councils. The town that I'm from had selectmen which was like, a, that's what they're called, like five or six selectmen, which are kind of like the executive body. And they have a town meeting, which is a representative body, like a legislature, which you don't, there's not like a set number. It's like, if you get a certain number of people to vote for you, you are on the town meeting, which meets once a year. My parents were on town meeting, which is nearly as hellish as I think you would think it was. We're a small town where nearly everybody gets together to make decisions for that town is really banging your head against all. They were very involved. So finance committee, town meeting. My mom was on town meeting maybe 10 years ago. Like it's, it's pretty recent. She was probably on it for 30 years. I had an aunt who was on the school committee in the same town. So very involved family and sort of local government, I would say. Also very involved in the Jewish community in, Toronto, in uh, Boston. They ran, you know, uh, fundraising appeals for, for Boston. There it's called Combined Jewish Philanthropies, which we have here as UJA, and very involved in local synagogue. So it wasn't it was just involved is how I would say like there wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't like it or hate it. It was sort of what was expected or part of sort of the DNA of what they did. My father was a lawyer. Then he became a judge. My mom sort of ran house and ran our lives. So and I have two older siblings. So it was really just always involved. And so when I got into politics or working for elected officials, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a stretch. It was very much, you know, this is where you sort of spend time. And they were very involved in politics. Democratic politics in Massachusetts is the only kind of politics. And so it was sort of the natural bent. Yeah, I think that's probably. But, but you know, most most people who start in politics probably don't land up in entrepreneurship. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who make money who then go into politics. But but you did it really the opposite way around. You had mentioned that that, that entrepreneurial spark kind of came to you. Were you were you looking for something else at the time, or or did that 
what, you know, do you think it's just kind of inherent in your nature that you wanted challenges, you wanted to build something like, like what, what was it that, that, you know, cause I don't, I don't really just believe that, you know, a spark happens. It's, there's gotta be something innate in someone's personality that, that, that allows that to actually manifest into something more. That's a good question. I think the first go round where I like started my own business, which was a consulting firm, was really a natural extension of what I was doing. This was in the early 2000s, where I was at a firm, some clients came to me and said, we want to work with you. Not so much the firm, but if you left, we would hire you basically. Like it wasn't as if I took a leap and there was nothing. It was, I didn't even take a leap. There was something and I, and I went. So like, I wouldn't even say I wanted to build something that actually was not sort of what I had in mind. But fast forward to when I got to Toronto, that's really where sort of a culmination of all my previous experience, it was, I want to do something and build something. And so I moved here in 2013. I was working at an agency. I still had clients in California. I was working at an agency here, like a marketing agency. And around uh, late 2016, early 2017, me, someone from the firm I was working at and, and someone we had met sort of along the way, this is when I sort of said, I think there's something to build especially around cannabis. We all, the one thing that bound the three of us together was cannabis. But we also, I would say actually relatively older entrepreneurs, right? I mean, I'm I'm almost 50 and this was only three and a half years ago. So it wasn't as if I was doing this in my twenties, like starting and selling and starting and selling. That one certainly wasn't it. But at this point, like the culmination of my experience in policy, politics, heavily regulated industries, my long time passion and love of cannabis. The position I was in wasn't right for me anymore. And some sort of partners to like take a huge leap. And frankly, like a, a supportive wife who has really a really good job. Like all of those things culminated to like, I could do this and I have a runway to actually do this in an industry that is new and interesting. And that was late 2016, early 2017. And so it was a good time to like take a leap and try to build something as sort of you described because there was something there. There was a gap in the market that I thought we could fill, and it seemed like it was going to be really fun to do that. If that weird combination of like my professional and personal background, my love of cannabis, the timing with the job, a supportive wife, like if any of those things had not been what it was, it would have been really, really hard to do. But then once you go, as you know, once you go and you really throw yourself into it, at some point I was like, I, this has to work. There's no, there's no not, there's no way this doesn't work, or else. It would just be devastating financially and emotionally and all those things. Couldn't agree more. You know, one of, one of the tenets, I think, of entrepreneurs is just like the inability to accept failure as an option. And, you know, a lot of people tell you, you have to accept failure as, you know, as part of your journey. I've always never understood that. In my mind, I'm not saying I can't fail, but it's not an option. Those are different things, right? Um, you know, what's your view on that sort of like diluted mentality that an entrepreneur has to have? I mean, the arc needs to be having it work. There's going to be hiccups along the way because not everything works, especially when you're building something new. And we, I, I can tell you the first thing we actually did failed and not because of us. Like, you know, you, you set the strategy and our strategy was if we could help communicate what was happening in the cannabis sector to basically the globe and mail audience, that would be some, that would be our great first step because the industry felt like they were being screwed by like traditional media. This was early 2017. And so we went to the Globe and Mail and said, hey, maybe I shouldn't even be saying this, but we don't work with them anymore. But we said, hey, sell us a sponsored content section. We will build this section. We'll sell advertising to it. We will put together the who's who list of Canadian cannabis. And this is way before, you know, a year before legalization. So, you know, we will do this for you. 
which they loved because it allowed them to take cannabis money, but actually have some distance of what they were producing because we would be on the hook for the publication of it. And we built six months and opened every door in the cannabis industry at the time. Like, hey, would you want to be on this list? Would you buy advertising? Yes, 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 yes. And literally three days before we were supposed to publish, the Global Mail called us back and said, actually, we're giving you your money back. We're not running this. And we said, oh, man, that's like, that's all the money we have. And you have it. Now we're going to have it. But now we're going to have to give it back to these companies that gave it to us because we're actually not doing the thing. Which then, this is the sort of, uh, you, you are given this weird gift. Like we had to call back all these partners. And it was, for us, it seemed like a lot of money. It was probably 85, 90 grand, uh, which was all the runway we had. And we got to call these partners back and say, hey, we are being treated unfairly, just like you're being treated unfairly. We're launching business of cannabis. And if you give us, if you leave this money with us, we will provide value in the coming year. Like we'll, you know, we're running a media company. We'll, we'll put you in events. We'll put you through content. And all of them said yes, mercifully, because it would have been a very short run of a business if we hadn't. But but it, it really is like the strategy was right. Like every, the, the timing wasn't right for the sort of outlet that we were wanting to work with. And then we said, okay, well, we're not going to work with other outlets because that we can't rely on other people. And so we'll just build our own thing. And that was December, 2017, January, 2019, uh, 2018. And that six months of like us banging on every door in the cannabis industry at the time gave us credibility that we weren't kind of late to the game in 2018 when legalization happened and, and it gave us credibility and, and people liked us, which goes a long way too. Yeah, right place, right time. There's there's no harm in a, a little bit of good luck. I want to go down the cannabis rabbit hole in a second, but I wanted to ask you one question prior to that. You have this interesting experience working in the U.S. and Canada. I'm always amazed at the differences, you know, between how business is conducted and the aggressiveness of Americans as an example. What could we learn as Canadians about, you know, what they do right in in the U.S. because they they are better at us in a lot of ways in building bigger businesses. As an example, um, is there anything that you've kind of seen uh, along your journey that 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 has led to some of the you know America's successes? Yeah, I mean, this is actually what drew us to the cannabis industry here in Canada was that it seemed very unlike other sectors in Canada, where like these entrepreneurs were pushing all their chips in, like money, professional, personal lives, just saying we don't know what the regulations are going to be, but we are pushing it all in in cannabis in Canada. And that seemed like interesting places to cover, like people to talk to, which is why we liked it because it did seem sort of not the antithesis of what's happening here in Canada, but it did seem sort of off brand for Canadians. I would say, especially my background in California and the heart of Silicon Valley, like there is, well, you talked about failure. There's almost pride in failure, right? Like I can't tell you how many people we came across in California that had been at startups you never heard of, raised a ton of money, failed spectacularly three months later and then not only live to tell about it but actually because they had that experience money was easier to get the next time like that made i know it doesn't make sense but if like what do they do differently they don't look at that sort of failure as you know the the ultimate mark of like not trustworthy with money like it's like it almost is a badge of honor that you'll try harder or think better or do more strategically so i think that that's really maybe unique to silicon valley but also, um, it's the relative size of the markets, relative scale of what you can do. You know, I was in California, which is the same size as here in terms of people. You know, it's harder to break in. But once you do, like you have a built in market and scaling from the biggest state in the country to every state that's smaller is probably easier than trying to make it in Toronto. And then sort of, you know, there's only so much you can do in Canada. But I think, you know, relative scale, you know, relative comfort with failure, 
access to capital is like so much, it's just different there, right? And that is the major difference. I mean, this is what you guys do, but the access to capital in, you know, Silicon Valley, it's not that it grows on trees, but close. there are a lot of trees. Yeah, close. But let's jump back to this whole cannabis thing from, you know, I've, I've watched this unfold as many have, and I've truly been amazed at how long it's taken for cannabis to become a mainstay and accepted. Did we not learn from like prohibition? Like, like what, what am I getting wrong? Like, like what happened? Because even from a policy standpoint, you have some really interesting insights. How did this take so long? What happened to create this, you know, this, 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 this aversion to, you know, legalizing a plant when we have alcohol and tobacco and other things? Because I, I just don't get it and I don't live in that world. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to do with sort of the history of the U.S. and history of race in the U.S., frankly, right? The, U- the U.S. made cannabis illegal nearly around the world. That's sort of what's their, that was what they did. And the reason why is that they, in, you know, they are afraid of the other. And the other in the U.S. history were smoking cannabis, right? And they, you know, the history of people of color in the U.S. is tortured. Uh, and, you know, the status quo didn't want people using cannabis. They didn't like the people that were using cannabis. Therefore, let's ban cannabis, right? And then because we banned it, let's make everybody we do work with across the world ban it as well. I mean, that's the short history, but the history of prohibition on cannabis is inextricably linked really to racism in the US. And, and so, which is why Canada banned it, which is why the rest of the world banned it too. Why it took so long to undo that is because these things are deeply rooted and entrenched. And the more they are entrenched, the more worried like the alcohol industry and pharma and the big entrenched interest in the U.S. and elsewhere are nervous about people accessing cannabis because, as we've seen in Canada, even with prohibition in Canada and everywhere else, people love cannabis. Like it's not, it's not as if the prohibition mattered that much. Everybody had access if they wanted it. It was a multi-billion-dollar industry underground, which is why the policy of prohibition didn't actually work with alcohol. It didn't work with cannabis either. It probably worked less well with cannabis uh, because it's just easier. To access to me to me that it looked for many years that they were hiding behind this idea of the war on drugs right which has been an absolute unmediated yeah. disaster totally you know was was that a way of hiding that kind of systemic racism as you you know pointed out i, I mean if you think they were hiding it yes that it was a way to hide it but the, the war on drugs in the u.s and, and to a lesser extent here it really only put black and brown people behind bars in the u.s i mean you know 70 percent wise so it wasn't as if me, a Jewish kid growing up in suburban Boston or going to a fancy private school in the South, like I was never worried I was going to get arrested with the weed that I had, right? Whereas my, you know, people who with different skin color, they really were worried about getting arrested with it and thrown in jail for very long periods of time for the same amount of cannabis as me and my friends were smoking, right? Like, so, so it was unequal, the war was unequally fought and the, the ravages of which are still being felt and hopefully undone. Because it, whether you agree with legalization or not, that policy failed because people had access to weed, and the wrong, and many people were arrested for 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 a long period of time for, you know, frivolous charges or trumped up charges, and that history is going to take a long time to unwind if it ever is. So Jay, I want to put your, I want you to get your crystal ball out. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs and and young you know, wannabe entrepreneurs that listen to this uh, podcast. So I want to I want to get back to the you know business a little bit. You're in the the heart of of this kind of cannabis culture. You really understand what's going on. For those that feel like they've missed the boat, which I believe that we haven't even started in a lot of ways, 
where should one be doubling down their efforts if they wanted to build a business and were passionate about the cannabis industry? I mean, to me, as an outsider, you know, going the LP route doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. Uh, you know, it's kind of being commoditized. There's a lot of avenues that to me don't make a lot of sense. But I also think that there's probably a huge amount of opportunity. So if, if for those that are listening, if you were going about starting a business now, where would you be focused? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think, I don't, whatever you do, do not build a million square foot greenhouse to grow crappy weed. That is a very bad bet. And people, and if you wanted one, you could probably buy one for pennies in the dollar. Like where we are seeing some really interesting innovation and let's say services that can cross jurisdictions is anything related to cannabis technology, to be quite honest. The biggest capital raises of the past six months have all been cannabis technology companies, especially as it relates to, to retail. So, you know, uh, marketplaces and point of sale, you know, uh, delivery systems, like all those things are raising tons of capital because if you were started in Denver where it's legal, but all you need to do, this is, I know this is not how it's done. So don't at me, like cut and paste that code for New York. It's a lot easier to do that than to figure out how to grow in a New York climate with different regulations and different people. Like the technology can move easily. And it has moved easily. So as the industry evolves in more places, the technology gets there first, this, the, the brands and everything else sort of come second. So like cannabis tech is, is booming right now, uh, up and down the supply chain, frankly, like from agricultural tech to point of sale, to retail, to deliver, like all that stuff is booming right now because it's easily transferable across challenging jurisdictions. And you had said sort of the LP route. Of course, that is challenging, especially if you want to grow you know, huge, huge uh, indoor grows or greenhouse. But even still, there are new brands launching all the time that are purely flower. There's, there's a company out of Montreal called Montreal Cannabis, MTL Cannabis, which is one grow, relatively small. They are growers who've grown for a very long time. They have found an audience for their premium cannabis. They grow one thing. They do it, you know, basically perfectly. And they sell it in four provinces and sell the shit out of it. Isn't this akin to like wineries in a way where yeah. like, you, you know, you, you have people that just love a certain way of, of producing and a certain jurisdiction and you, you can build some incredible brands. Yeah, you can. I think that cannabis is moving in that direction. It's certainly, it, certainly the, you know, it's the 80-20 rule, like 80% of the cannabis is bought by 20% of the connoisseurs, right? And so they know what they want. They're, they want value, they want quality, and they know what they want. And Montreal cannabis has sort of filled that gap at the same. So that's like someone who grows, they grow one thing, consumers love it. That's like on the flower side. And I think we will see craft or relatively craft growers doing amazing things because of the consistency and the quality. There are also different and apart from the flower side, like brands that have evolved and really, you know, captured people's imagination, which doesn't necessarily mean I need to grow anything, but I could buy from you, a wholesaler. I can produce a brand or extract it or create a great vape pen or edible and actually find a, a gap in the market that people want my you know gummy and i could build a brand around that so like there's flour which is great and you need to be really good at it and you could also create brands that have not you know i could never even touch the plant and still produce great brands and we've seen some of that as well where you know people are uh, really capturing consumers imagination that's sort of another thing like directly from canada you know canadian based gummy companies doing going gangbusters, there are also brands just like technologies that are crossing jurisdictions. Like the number one selling gummy in Canada is called Wanna Gummies. And 
they're actually based, I think they're based in Denver and sell in five states. Like they actually, it's a formulation that's in a brand, not so much, you know, a technique, it's a formulation. So the formulation can travel to Canada, even though you can't bring, you know, American cannabis into Canada, you can bring American brands and vice versa. You know, there are, there are, there will be Canadian brands that cross into the US as well. There, there is opportunity, but it's also, it is a really challenging industry because of the regulations, because everything has to go through provincial wholesalers if you want to sell anything. But the tech part, you know, it's just like tech, like it's, it's much more easily transferable if you actually, you know, fill a gap or solve a problem. And although the cannabis war hasn't been won completely yet, you know, it's on its way. I'd be remiss to not ask you about the next domino to fall. You know, some of the more recent deals that I've been coming across are in the psychedelic space, as an example. What's your view on on a that you know the, that next kind of a domino? And secondly, like, do these dominoes ever stop? Like, are we going to just decriminalize all drugs across the board eventually? Like, what's your opinion on that? I don't think so. I think cannabis. There was a path cannabis took where patients drove acceptance, patients drove the government to act, patients had access to medical cannabis, medical cannabis led to recreational cannabis. Now we have a medical program and recreational cannabis too. I, I do not think, frankly, that there will be a same path for psychedelics. I just don't think there will be. They are not, there is unbelievable promise to it, uh, up and down, right? From, from psilocybin to ketamine, the, the whole bit. And maybe even more promise than sort of medical cannabis. Like there are some real promising things on the horizon antidepressants and end-of-life care. There's, there's, there's a whole bunch of uses that are extremely impactful. All of it, PTSD, like the whole, all of that. It's, it's really unbelievable. I just don't see a path where, maybe I'm wrong, I just don't see where you will be able to go into a store and buy mushrooms. Well, you can already do that, but it's not legal. I, no, 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 <laughs> I'm saying legal. I mean legally. So like, yeah, I think yeah. there's different, like I think, I think increased access to medical psilocybin, medical... LSD, ketamine, like all that, I think is actually likely and, and I'm hopeful for it because I think it has tremendous promise. I just don't think it'll be on a rec, a recreational sort of platform. That said, you know, there, there are other, like you could have medical and like not get thrown in jail if you have, you know, a, a mushroom farm basically, or, you know, you have a gram of mushrooms on you. Like I, there's decriminalization of, 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 uh, sort of, um, and lack of enforcement, which we've seen in some communities in, in the States. I, I just think it's like much more likely to be a medical program that you do it with a doctor or get authorization to do it as opposed to buy it at a store. I mean, it can be very serious. I mean, cannabis can be serious too, or and I, I just think governments are less likely to make recreational psilocybin, for example, available. They may decriminalize it, so you're not going to go to jail if you possess it. But I, 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 aside from the stores where you can buy it now and or the people that will deliver it to your door, I don't see that being legalized anytime soon, maybe ever. So you spoke about how cannabis is a hard industry. I want to go back to you know the podcast called Dealmaker's DNA. Let's go to the DNA side. What's the kind of person, entrepreneur that should you know consider getting involved in an industry like this? Where, you know where others that you've seen come and go, and like yeah, that was pretty obvious. That person was not going to last. Like, what are those characteristics that you think are important to deal in an industry where regulation and policy and business and media all kind of intersect? Yeah, I, it's funny because I look at everything, you know, it's like, what's the saying? Like, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like if you're in politics or policy, everything looks like a heavily regulated industry. And there are similarities. Like when, when we were getting involved in cannabis, I said, you know what? Like I've seen this in energy, right? In electricity and PG&E. Like PG&E, even though many people hate them as a utility, 
They have strong union support. A lot of local governments like them too, because there's tons of jobs. Like they, you know, they have a constituency that is outside of their own, their own employees, for example, right? Whereas cannabis, even still to now, like there is not a huge constituency for cannabis. And that to me said, this is going to be a challenging industry because you need other people to speak up and say, we like these jobs. They are good employers. You know, they are reviving small towns, all those things. And even still, we don't really have that yet. So what type of person you, re- you, you need to understand that it's not like cutting and pasting, like beverage alcohol marketing, we're just going to cut and paste it here. It's much more like tobacco, frankly, where you can't really do anything. Right. If you um, if you don't understand that, 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 you know, if you just constantly think, oh, my God, the regs are going to screw me, the regs are going to screw me, then you are not cut out for this. You need to be in the problem. You need to be in the business of solving some of those issues because that is the industry. And it's not like, oh, we could just create this cool weed brand. Like I've heard that like a million times over, like people in, at agencies saying we could do this great brand. I'm like, but that does that has no relevance. Like what you're saying, you might as well be you know talking about you know, shipping off to the moon because to someone working in a day-to-day, it doesn't mean anything. So it's like, you need to understand the industry you're operating in, whether that's cannabis or whether that is, you know, point of sale systems at coffee shops, like you need to understand the realities on the ground. And I think that is, um, that's important if you want to enter the space. And the part that is really challenging to deal with is that it is, it changes all the time, right? Like uh, for example, in, in uh, growers, sort of licensed producers, Everybody up to a one up to a point we had to buy this expensive big vault for their cannabis. And then one day, so like three hundred thousand dollar vault. And sometimes you needed more of them depending on the size of your of your grow. And then one day the 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 the, the mandate for that vault went away. So people who came on one day were spending three hundred thousand dollars. The next day they didn't have to. Right. And like imagine the gut punch you just raised like it, it would in that case it would have been great to wait to build your like all, those things change all the time. And so you just got to be ready to roll with it. And that that's hard. You know, it's really, and there have been whole business models wiped out because of changing regulations. And that sucks. Yeah, I have one last question before I, before I let you go. Yeah. yeah. Would you recommend entrepreneurs start in politics to some degree or, or get involved in politics to some degree? And, and if so, why? And I'm asking this question actually for me personally, like I've always shied away from, you know, getting involved in politics in any way, shape or form, you know, why or why not? Am I right or wrong? I'm going to say yes. And I'll, I'll give you my example, but also other entrepreneurs that I know. Unlike many industries, if, if you look at sort of politics as an industry, you will do a little bit of a lot of things in politics. You will write, you will speak, you need to manage up, you need to manage down. Like you need to understand the world around you and be super hyper aware of what's happening because Many times a decision that you or the people you're working with make on one day, you will hear about it or see the result the next. And that's very direct. And the feedback loop is almost instantaneous. And as a young person, when I got into politics, God, it seems like a million years ago, like you got to do a lot and you had to do a lot. And the pace was outstanding as sort of training for what you would be doing, what I'd be doing later, right? That, that pace and that everyday grind is pretty constant in politics. And I see a lot of transferability of those skills to everything I do today. As well, I work with these other group of entrepreneurs, uh, younger than me, that just started a media company called The Peak. Uh, And they all came from politics. Similarly, they are hyper aware of the world around them. They understand how to uh, speak and write and all those things that that are critical, but also how you can move people to your either way of thinking or build an audience because that's all politics is. I mean, 
if you really boil it down, you want people to listen to your message and be drawn to it. And that's not unlike what a lot of entrepreneurs are, whether they're trying to raise money or, or build a media company, like you have to be able to do all those things. And while I think we probably, you know, we might have an A on communication skills and sort of influencing, we probably have a, a B minus or a C on like how to run a business. But, you know, you're going you're gonna to have some deficiencies anyway. It's just going to pick your poison. But I'd rather be the one where I can actually talk to you ad nauseum about my background and what we do, as opposed to not be able to carry a conversation and like be great at running a spreadsheet. That's great, Jay. I mean, thank you so, so much for your time. For those that want to follow along in your journey, what's the best, what's the best way that they can do that? Sure. Businessofcannabis.com. And as you go there, you'll be prompted to follow our newsletter. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, all those things. We will not disappoint you in our social feeds, or our newsletter on our website. It's pretty dynamic and all the time and always on. You will learn a lot about what's happening in the sector, not just in Canada, but around North America. So yeah, that's us. Well, thank you very much. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.